Chapter Seventeen of England, Canada, and the Great War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. England, Canada, and the Great War by Louis Georges Desjardins. Chapter Seventeen: Loyal Principles Propounded. To the foregoing nationalist proposition, I opposed one condensing in a concrete form the views and principles of the truly loyal Canadian citizens. I also translate it as follows. Quote, whereas since eighteen seventy the german empire had been a permanent menace against the peace of the world by her threatening military policy whereas england throughout the same period and more especially during the twenty years previous to nineteen fourteen had done her utmost efforts to maintain peace considering that great britain had in many ways solicited germany to agree to the limitation of armaments especially of the building of war vessels considering that she had persisted in her attempts with the german government to save the nations from the ruinous system of excessive armaments in spite of the latter's refusal to accede to her demands considering that though in honour bound like england by three solemn treaties to respect belgium's neutrality the german government have in august nineteen fourteen ordered their army to violate belgian territory in order to more easily invade france to which they had declared war whereas great britain in honour bound could not permit the crushing of belgium by the german empire considering moreover that germany after mutilating and destroying belgium by the deprivation of her independence after triumphing over france which she would have once again dismembered would have undertaken to beat england to deprive her of sea supremacy in order to obtain by this last conquest her domination over europe and almost all the world considering that the defeat of England might very likely have resulted in the cession of Canada to Germany, considering that the world at large is greatly interested in the maintenance of England and France as first-class powers on account of their services in favour of human civilization and liberty, considering that the German armies have accompanied their military operations with untold barbarous acts by the murder of priests, of peaceful citizens, of wounded soldiers, of religious women, of mothers, of previously criminally outraged young girls, of old men, of young children, with the destruction by fire and otherwise of cathedrals, churches, monuments of the Christian art, of libraries, sanctuaries of science, of historical monuments, the legitimate glory and pride of human genius. Whereas the German government is guilty of the murder of thousands of persons, men, women, and children, by the sinking of merchant vessels, the Lusitania, for instance, by its submarine ships, without giving the notices required by international law. Whereas from the very beginning of the war, the Allied nations, England, France, and Russia, have jointly agreed in honour bound to require, as the essential peace condition, the cessation by all the belligerent powers of the crushing and ruinous militarism prevailing before the opening of the hostilities, by the fault of Germany's obstination to constantly strengthen her military organization, both on land and sea considering that england and her allies are struggling for the most venerable and sacred cause outraged justice that being a british colony canada is justly engaged in the present cruel and deplorable conflict for the defence of the right and the true liberty of nations that our canadian soldiers are valiantly fighting with those of england france and belgium for the great cause of sovereign importance the protection of the world threatened by germanism considering that england to which the political life of canada is bound and france to which the french canadians owe their national existence have to fight for sacred interests in a war of endurance requiring the incessant renewal of all the energies of the most ardent patriotism the victims of which falling on the field of honour have the merit of giving their lives for justice 
considering that, though wishing the restoration of peace as soon as possible, and earnestly praying divine providence to favour the world with the blessings of peace, more and more urgently needed after this assault of abominable barbarism against Christian civilization lasting for the last four years, the Allies are absolutely unable to terminate the war by giving their consent to conditions which would not protect humanity against the direst consequences of the militarism fastened by the German Empire on the nations so anxious to bring it to an end. Be it quote-unquote resolved, that this meeting approves of the free and patriotic decision of the federal parliament to have canada to participate in the so very just war which england france belgium the united states and italy are fighting against the german and austrian empires allied in an effort to dominate the world that this meeting's strong opinion is that on account of the terrible crisis menacing the british empire and civilization it was the bounden duty of canada to intervene in the war for the safety of the mother country and her own for the salvation of liberty and of the sacred cause of outraged justice that this meeting desires to express her admiration and profound gratitude for the braves who enlist in the grand army which the canadian parliament has ordered to be organized for the defence of the cause of the allies which is also that of the civilized world that this meeting also concur in the opinion that canada is in duty bound to continue to participate in the present war until the final victory of the allies which will guarantee to the world a lasting peace and put an end to German militarism which has been the direct cause of so much dire misfortunes for humanity. The italics of the above draft resolution are quoted from the writings and speeches of the leaders of French-Canadian Roman Catholics. There was no need of calling meetings to adopt the preceding resolution with its well-defined preamble. It had been approved in all its bearings at the outset of the hostilities by the unanimous decision of the Canadian Parliament by the almost unanimous consent of public opinion, by the religious, social, commercial, industrial, and financial leaders of the country. It had been so approved by the four hundred thousand brave Canadians who rallied to the colours, by the subscribers by thousands to the national war loans. Since writing the above draft resolution, its full substance has been almost unanimously approved by the Canadian people in general elections the two contending political parties entirely agreeing so far as the justice of the cause of the Allies was concerned, differing only as to the best means for Canada to adopt to achieve final victory. Without entering into any considerations respecting the divergence of the views of the leaders of political thought, in the still recent electoral campaign from which it is more advisable for me to abstain in the interest of the cause I am defending, I may be allowed to remark that only a small remnant of the nationalist element dared to reaffirm his hostility to Canada's intervention in the conflict, and to avow his opinion that the country had done enough. What did those irreconcilable nationalists, so few in numbers as the event ultimately proved, mean by their assertion that Canada had done enough for the war? According to its literal wording, it must have signified that no more sacrifices should have been incurred for the triumph of the Allied cause. If it was so, the conclusion to be drawn from such sayings was that, to put an end to any further Canadian contributions, orders should be given to bring back the Canadian army from Europe, and to send home all the forces still on Canadian soil. It is plain that even if the new Canadian Parliament had decided not to increase our contribution of manpower, in order to maintain the efficiency of the Canadian divisions at the front, large sacrifices would have had to be made to keep on the theatre of war the forces which were still in the field. To refuse to participate in the war would have been deserting the flag at the hour of danger, and a total misconception of our plain duty. Giving up the fight, once engaged in the struggle, before triumphant victory or irremediable defeat, 
in the very thick of the battle so heroically carried on by the Allies, would have been sheer cowardice, Bolshevikism of the worst kind. Whether they meant it or not, those few nationalists dared not openly propose the recall of our troops. The solitary nationalist candidate who had the nerve to face the electorate was defeated by a very large majority. No better proof of the weakness of the hold of the doctrines of nationalism on sound public opinion is required than the decision of its most outspoken advocate and leader, Mr. Bourassa, to refrain from being a candidate in any constituency, and to advise all his supposed friends to do likewise. No one was deceived, with regard to this decision, by the reasons, or rather excuses, given to explain it. Evidently, if the nationalist group and their leader had been confident of the support of the large number of electors whose opinion they pretended to represent, they would certainly not have lost the chance to show their strength, and the opportunity to elect many candidates of their persuasion to enter Parliament free from any party allegiance but that of their own element. But any one somewhat posted with the currents of public opinion in the province of Quebec knew very well that if pure nationalist candidates had been nominated in all the constituencies of the province, running between the regular party nominees, ministerial and opposition, the average number of ballots cast for them would scarcely have reached ten percent of the French-Canadian votes, less than two percent of the whole Canadian electorate. It was moreover highly probable that, had they tried the game, they would not have even succeeded in two-thirds of the constituencies in inducing citizens of sufficient standing to accept their nomination and their political programme. Once engaged in such a hopeless electoral contest, they would have had either to humbly retire from the field, or to await the doomed day by nominating men of no weight whatever. Both alternatives would have led them to an equally disastrous defeat. Title. Unjust Nationalist Grievances Against England At the end of the very first page of Mr. Bourassa's pamphlet, entitled What Do We Owe England? in French, Que Devons-Nous à l'Angleterre? the following lines are found. Translation. Quote, British imperialism, in its concrete and practical form, can be defined in ten words. The act of participation by the colonies in the wars of England. It is almost precisely the definition I gave of it as early as the days of the African War. It is exact. Considered from a larger point of view, from its profound causes and far-reaching consequences, British imperialism calls for a more ample definition. Its object is to have Great Britain dominate the world by means of the organization and concentration of all the military forces of the Empire, both sea and land forces. It means the gradual annihilation, or at least the enslaving of all the diverse nationalities constituting the British Empire, in order to bring about the world's supremacy of the Anglo-Saxon race, of her thoughts, of her language, of her political conceptions, of her commerce and her wealth. Its object is to crush all competitions, all internal and external oppositions. It is the German ideal, it is the Roman ideal, it is the imperialism of all countries at all times enlarged to the limits of the monstrous pretensions of pan-Anglo-Saxonism. All the propositions of the above quotation do not bear for one single instant the light of historical research, of reason, even of common sense. I challenge Mr. Bourassa and any one else to read the speeches and the writings of all those who have studied the great question of the future of the British Empire, and to detect therein one single word to justify the assertion that the organization and concentration of all the military forces of the Empire have for their object to help England to dominate the world. I have already abundantly proved that England never aspired to dominate the world. I answered Mr. Bourassa's unfounded propositions as follows. 1. I will surely be allowed to say that for nearly the last fifty years 
I have done my best efforts to keep myself well informed with the opinions expressed by the most authorized political men of the mother-country, of all parties, by the most renowned publicists, by the most distinguished writers of the great English press. I have yet to read one sentence leading me to suppose that the mind of any one of them was haunted by the foolish hope of Great Britain's domination of the world. Many of them have spoken and written to persuade their countrymen of the growing urgency to consider the most effective measures to be adopted to defend the empire, in view of the efforts of other nations, notably Germany, to strengthen their military organizations. No one advised them to incur the most heavy sacrifices in order to dominate the world. They had too much political sense to believe that such a ridiculous scheme could ever be carried out. 2 what the nationalist leader calls british imperialism never had for its objective the gradual suppression or at least the enslaving of the diverse nationalities constituting the british empire such an assertion is nothing less than a stroke of the imagination which recent history utterly refutes proving as it does the very reverse as follows a the creation by imperial charters of the great autonomous federal canadian australian south african dominions b the federal system adopted for the dominion of Canada purposely for the protection of the French Canadians whose special interests are entrusted to the legislature of the province of Quebec. c. The South African Union Charter is the guarantee of the Boers' control of the future of that vast stretch of country, by means of the two fundamental principles of the British constitutional system, government by the majority, combined with ministerial responsibility. No empire in the world grants as large a measure of freedom as the British Empire does to the various national groups living under the protection of her flag. 3. British imperialism, contrary to Mr. Bourassa's assertion, was never deluded by the wild dream of a world-wide supremacy of the Anglo-Saxon race, of her thoughts, of her language, of her political conceptions, of her commerce and her wealth. Surely I have yet to learn that Great Britain has dreamt, and is dreaming, to impose by force her quote-unquote mentality, her language, her political institutions, to China, to Japan, to Russia, to France, to all the South American republics, to Italy, to Spain, to Germany, to Austria-Hungary, to Turkey, etc., which, considered as a whole, represent, as any one must admit, a pretty large part of the universe. 4. Mr. Bourassa's assertion that England aspires to dominate the world economically, commercially, is most positively contradicted by the history of the last eighty years. Who does not know, and I cannot for a moment suppose that Mr. Bourassa ignores it, that nearly a century ago Great Britain, finally rallied in favour of a free trade policy, has opened her market free to the products of all the nations of the world? Is that not a rather strange way of aspiring to an economical domination? and whilst all the countries of the earth, the British colonies as well as foreign nations, can freely sell their goods in the British market, they protect their own markets by high customs duties, in some cases almost prohibitive, against British goods. National commercial statistics are open to the nationalist leader's perusal, as to any one else. If he had referred to them, he would have learned that the foreign trade of Great Britain in 1913, the year preceding the outbreak of the war, amounted to seven billion seventeen million seven hundred and seventy five thousand three hundred and thirty five dollars exports were valued at three billion one hundred and seventy four million one hundred and one thousand six hundred and thirty dollars imports totalized three billion eight hundred forty three million six hundred and seventy three thousand six hundred and ninety five dollars exceeding the exports by the large amount of six hundred and sixty nine million five hundred and seventy two thousand sixty five dollars
by looking at the figures, Mr. Bourassa would only have had to call upon his common sense to draw the conclusion that England was certainly not moving along an easy road to the commercial domination of the world, by maintaining a policy resulting in an import trade larger, by an annual average of nearly twenty per cent, than her exportations. Before the war, Germany, by rapid strokes, had succeeded in attaining the second rank amongst the great trading nations, coming next after Great Britain. In the same year, 1913, her foreign trade totalized $5,351,500,000, divided as follows. Imports, $2,801,675,000. Exports, $2,549,825,000. The really wonderful industrial and commercial expansion of Germany during the last forty years previous to the war offered another opportunity to Mr. Bourassa to show his spite against Great Britain. He would have been sorry not to make the best of it. Calling into play his fertile imagination, he unhesitatingly charged England with deep-rooted jealousy of Germany's trade success and the guilty intent to crush it out of existence. To this absurd assertion, not using the word offensively, being always determined to be courteous in any discussion I engage, I answered by quoting the figures of the reciprocal relative external British and German trade. In 1913, Great Britain sold to Germany goods to the amount of $203,385,150, and bought German products for a total value of $402,055,285. Great Britain's exports to Germany were then only about 50% of her imports from the same market. It is indeed difficult to detect in such trade relations between two nations any sign of the intent on the part of the country buying from the other double the value of her sales to her, to dominate her people commercially. Any one knowing all the circumstances and the causes that imposed upon Great Britain the duty of taking part in the European struggle, cannot help being shocked at Mr. Bourassa's accusation that England has incidentally been brought into the conflict only through the frantic desire of her businessmen to use it to crush the commercial competition of Germany. No serious men could have entertained such strange notions, and the nationalist leader certainly charged the political leaders and the business community of England with sheer madness. With all right-minded men the world over, I have long ago reached the sound conclusion that universal economical domination is only a chimerical idea absolutely outside of all possible realization. England does not indulge in any such extravagant dream, being too well aware how vain it would be. May I ask my readers, and Mr. Bourassa has been one of them, to join with me in a short general review of the economical progress of the world in its broadest lines, rising for this purpose, as should be done in all cases, superior to all national and local prejudices. A grand national scenery is always better appreciated from the mountain-top. Equally so, questions of universal import must be considered from the heights of the noblest principles inspiring the Christian desire to promote the general good of mankind. Considered from this elevated standpoint, very short-sighted indeed is the man who fails to see that the economical progress of the world, agriculturally, industrially, commercially, is bound up with intelligent, energetic, and persevering labor, that it is the outcome of the improvements of all the means of production to the constant increased perfection of the agricultural and industrial arts, to the enlargement of the resources of capital accumulated by judicious savings. It is bound with the improvement of means of transportation by land and sea, with the much enlarged facilities of the exchange of all kinds of products, with the superior management, the result of a much wider experience, of all the institutions distributing credit, 
with the energetic development of all the resources which generous providence has profusely provided the earth for the good of humanity it is more than useless to expect economical progress from disastrous armed conflicts which in the course of a few years nay only a few months destroy the accumulated wealth of many years of incessant labour war is productive of untold material losses as a general rule it cannot make the nations of the world richer many successive generations have for a long time to bear the crushing burden which they inherit from guilty ambitious rulers as the only result of their thirst of vain glory materially a nation may profit by an unjust war resulting in the defeat of a weaker rival but the riches thus acquired by the one either by territorial acquisitions or by the payment to her of war contributions and indemnities or both from the other are merely transferred from the vanquished to the victor the great society of nations instead of gaining anything by it is only losing as a whole the total amount of the financial cost of the military operations of the squandering of hard-earned savings of diminished labour and production of the waste of productive capital of the loss of so many long days which could have been so much better employed but most deplorable is the loss entailed by the warring nations and the universe at large by the sacrifice of the younger generations of early youth and of strongly developed manhood for the success of tyrannical and criminal purposes there can be but one justification and it is a noble a glorious one of the sacrifice of so many valuable lives and so much material wealth the sacredness the sanctity of the cause for which a nation or a group of peoples take up arms against an enemy or enemies only intent on crushing weaker rival or rivals by all the illegitimate means at his or their command for self-aggrandizement for unjust domination such is the present war sacred and just on the allied side abominable brutal barbarous on the german side enhanced in its guilt by the ferocious turks and the shameful submission of the enslaved austrians to the overpowering will of their teutonic masters it will not have cost too much if it has the result of freeing mankind from the horrors of german militarism assuring to the world a long reign of justice and moral grandeur england can rightly claim a very large part of the merit accruing to all those who have contributed to the immense material progress of the world during the last century she has actively and most intelligently worked for it by her vigorous industrial and commercial development by the very numerous billions of dollars she has contributed all over the world to railway building and oceanic navigation she has contributed to it by her extraordinary amount of savings which allowed her to supply the capital required for so many varied enterprises over all the continents she has played the very important part of universal banker distributing her immense treasures to foster production of all kinds everywhere she has most largely contributed to the economic phenomenon of the gradual diminution of the universal rate of interest if according to mr bourassa's strange notion all this is to be considered as equivalent to economical domination the more the whole world will enjoy it the better more prosperous it will be and future generations will have so much more cause for rejoicing at its increased development and to be grateful to england for it the witnesses who for the last sixty years have lived with their eyes opened preferring the full shining light of the bright days of universal economical development to the darkness obscuring fanatical minds only intent on stirring up local sectional and national prejudices and miserable petty ambitions have rejoiced at the greatly varied advantages humanity has derived from the gifts of providence favouring her with the great scientific discoveries which have worked are still and will for all times work wonders for her material prosperity the regular tendency of those natural forces recently applied to production 
is an increased movement towards the unification of the industrial, commercial, and financial interests of the world. The vital energies of all peoples have more or less been stimulated by the same causes, operating everywhere, reaching until lately unknown and undeveloped regions. Engineering genius, broadened by the new scientific resources at its command, has triumphed over all difficulties. The gigantic locomotive, drawing palatial passenger coaches, and sometimes as much as a hundred heavily loaded freight cars, run by thousands and thousands daily through luxurious prairies. They cross giant rivers, ascend with alertness the highest mountains, or rush through tunnels which the skill and hard work of man has pierced through them, backed by the financial power of millions of money. Automobilism covers the whole universe, multiplying intercourse and human relations, and making possible, in a few days of marvellous organization, a glorious military victory like that almost miraculously carried at the Marne. Giant steamers, of fifty to sixty thousand tons, of a hundred thousand in the near future, ply day and night over the high seas. In mid-ocean they scatter human thoughts through the air to very distant points. They carry within their large skulls immense quantities of the most varied products. Means of transportation have become so numerous, so improved, so rapid, that the surplus agricultural production of the most fertile regions do reach, in a few short days, the countries which, on account of their numerous industrial and commercial population, have to import a large quantity of food products. The equilibrium between production and consumption becomes yearly more easily obtainable. Famine by the inequality of agricultural production is very much less to be apprehended. Millions of human beings are no longer, as hitherto, threatened to die by starvation at the same time that more favoured regions had a surplus of food products which they could not use, sell, or export. Without a most powerful capitalization of savings, totalling in some cases billions of dollars, without the marvellous development of the great transportation industry by land and sea, could the Canadian and American western grain crops be delivered, within a few days' time, with an astonishing rapidity and at very small cost, on all the markets where they are absolutely required for daily consumption. Every country on earth is multiplying her efforts to develop her manufacturing interests by an active and intelligent use of the raw materials with which her territory has been favoured by nature. To this immense economical development of the world, all the peoples are contributing their shares in various productions, of course. In Europe, Great Britain, France, Germany, Russia, Austria, Italy, Belgium, etc. In the two Americas, the United States, Canada, Canada with the sure prospects of such a grand future, the Argentine Republic, Brazil, etc. In Asia, Japan, China, and the so very large Asiatic regions of Russia. In Africa, the British colonies, Egypt, Algeria, etc. And Australia, so recently open to the glories of Christian civilization, blooming in the Pacific Ocean washing her shores, fertilizing her lands nearer to its refreshing breeze. Who does not see that all this development tends naturally to the economical unity of the world? If humanity is ever effectively delivered from the dangers of wars like the one actually desolating her so cruelly, she will have to be grateful for this great boon to the unification, on a larger scale, of the general interests of all the nations requiring permanent peace for their regular and harmonious growth. To the wonderful material prosperity achieved as above mentioned, England has contributed her legitimate share, without trying to dominate economically the universe which derived all the great advantages which her business genius has so largely developed. It must not be supposed that I lose sight of the inconveniences which material prosperity may entail. One of them is the tendency to bend the national aspirations to materialism. 
this can be counteracted by the national will to apply material development to the more important intellectual moral and religious progress of the people at large any nation aspiring to dominate the world by brute force or by the power of wealth would be guilty of attempting an achievement just as vain as it would be criminal in its conception any nation is within her undoubted right and duty in aspiring to the legitimate influence of her material progress of her intellectual culture of her moral development of her religious increased perfection happy indeed would be the future of humanity if all the nations and their rulers understood well and did their best efforts to practice christian precepts in the true spirit of their divine teaching End of chapter seventeen